last time, and tonight we're going to conclude that study. And I plan, as I indicated, to uh, have our study for about a half hour, and then tell something about our trip to India and show some pictures, and then make a very important announcement at the end of the class. So let's begin by turning to John chapter 4 and begin our reading at uh, verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples besought him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have food to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has anybody brought him anything to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My food, that word meat is food, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Don't say, there yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white already to harvest. And he that reaps receives wages, and gathers fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And here's that saying true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that on which you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you are entered into their labor. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they, be, uh, they besought him, they beseeched him that he would stay with them. And so he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we study this wonderful passage tonight that thou help us to understand it and to get at what uh, the Lord Jesus is talking about here and to send something of the urgency that was upon his soul to reach the men and women and boys and girls of his own generation with the gospel. So help us as we study together tonight. Make this a very profitable evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, we have the work of Christ in Samaria. John chapter 2, verse 12, to John chapter 3, verse 21, we have the work of Christ in Jerusalem. John chapter 3, verse 22 to 36, we have the work of Christ in Judea. Third, in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, we have the work of Christ in Samaria. And fourth, next week, John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, the work of Christ in Galilee. Now, we studied part of this last Monday night. Matter of fact, we studied it also the previous Monday night. We have the work of Jesus in Samaria in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. First of all, there's the background of the story. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, the Lord left uh, Judea and came into Samaria and stopped at Jacob's well near the city of Sychar. Secondly, we had the conversation of Jesus with the woman of Samaria beside the well. That's found in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. And then third, we have the conversion of the Samaritans in John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. We studied part of this last time. And uh, you remember verse 27, the disciples came back from the city and they said to the Lord, uh, here's the food that we went into the city to get for you. Now go ahead and eat. And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat of which you know nothing. And that surprised them. It rather staggered them. And so they, rather than ask him, they said to one another, 
Now, where did he get that food? Did somebody bring him food? Did that woman bring him some food? He knew what they were saying. So he said to them, my food, my meat, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The thing that gives me the highest satisfaction is to do the will of God. Then he went, to speak, went on to speak about the harvest that was ripe for reaping. And when they finished, uh, uh, he mentioned to them that uh, the principle that one sows and another reaps, but both will be rewarded. The conclusion of the story is found in verses 39 to 42. We didn't look at that last time. And we have um, uh, the Samaritans come out from the city. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Christ for the saying of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Now that's the normal way that we come to faith in Christ. Somebody else shares his testimony, shares his or her testimony about the Lord and that person's saved. In our chapel this morning, we had a, a Christian service report chapel, and our students got up, four or five of them, and told what they were doing as they were involved in their Christian service assignment. And then after so we opened it up for anybody who wanted to speak, and we had a young man, about middle 20s, who's married, and he got up, I mentioned this day, many of you would know his grandmother and grandfather, so I won't mention the name. But he stood up and, uh, and he said, uh, I want to thank the Lord that last week, last week, my brother was saved. And since my brother was saved, he's already led two other people to the Lord. And he's got four other people with whom he's dealing and he can't answer some questions, and he wants me to help him with these four other people. And he said, it's really embarrassed and shamed me that within one week's time, my own brother has taken the initiative to find two people whom he knew and to lead both of them to saving faith in Christ. And he's got four others to whom he's taught, and he's had problems. Of the four boys, I knew their daddy, knew their uncle, aunt, knew all the family, and that's the last boy that was outside the fold. All three other boys had trusted the Lord as Savior, and that fourth boy now has trusted the Lord, and that means that all those four boys are in the fold, and I know their mother is rejoicing in that. Here's this woman, right in the city, woman that had up to this time lived in disgrace. She didn't have much leverage. She wasn't popular. And yet she did the very simple way what the Lord uh, told all of us to do, and that is she shared with the men in the city what Christ had done for her, what he meant to her. And because of that, many in the city believed on him. Verse 40, they came out of the city, came to where Jesus was at Jacob's well. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought, they urged Jesus that he would tarry with them, and he stayed with them in that city for two days. And they said unto the woman, uh, verse 41, many more believe because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, now we believe, not because of your saying alone, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now let me observe a couple of things in verses 41 and 42. That's no reflection on the testimony of the woman. They were simply stating the fact. Your testimony was adequate to bring some of our folk to, to Christ, but not us. And now we've got only got your testimony. We've met 
Christ personally. We've heard him personally, met him personally, and we've trusted him as Savior. You notice here's the first affirmation of Jesus as Savior, and it comes from the Samaritans. I'm going to point out two things here. First of all, there's no substitute for a personal experience of Christ as Savior. You can hear him by the hearing of the ear through somebody else. You can have a second-hand experience, as a lot do, but that won't do it. I need a first-hand personal experience of Christ myself to be saved. I told my children as they grew up that uh, hopefully you're in a very uh, privileged or good situation growing up in the bands, but you're in a very dangerous position. Because although you hear about the Lord at the family altar and you hear about the Lord uh, at church services, therefore you, uh, you have the gospel and you've heard the gospel and heard it well, yet at the same time, the tendency is, when you grow up in a home like this or in a Christian home, that it becomes old hat to you. And sometimes you tend to ride uh, the sons and daughters of preachers tend to ride on the coattails of their father. And riding on the coattails of one's father won't get one into heaven. See? And I need a personal confrontation of Christ as Savior. When I was in India, I asked several Indian pastors, what is the thing that we ought to preach on? And almost invariably, these young pastors would say to me, preach on the new birth. Preach on being born again. But one of our problems, they told me in India, is that we have a lot of people in churches that have never been born again. And I said, well, that's a lot like Memphis. And that's a lot like the United States. A lot of people in churches hear the gospel, and it gets old hat with them. And, you know, they may go on 20, 25 years until one day after hearing the gospel, for 20, 25 years, it dawns on them that they, he or she, needs a personal saving experience of Christ. That's what these people had. And then they gave that great testimony. We know that this one is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice that statement, the Savior of the world. Now, uh, our hyper-Calvinist friends and I looked at one commentary this afternoon would say, he's the savior of the world of the elect. That's not what he said. He said he's the savior of the world. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus Christ is the savior of all men, especially of them that believe. The death of Christ is, is sufficient for all, as the old saying goes, but it's efficacious for only those that believe. I believe in the doctrine of election and predestination. The reason I do is because the Bible teaches it. Like old Mel Trotter was ordained in, uh, in, uh, uh, in a northern presbytery. Noel Trotter was saved out of a life of alcoholism. He was the founder of a great rescue mission in Grand Rapids, known almost worldwide. He never went to college, never went to seminary but he wanted to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister. So when he came up before the Presbytery, there was one old elder that was dead set on making sure that Mel Trotter was rejected. 
He didn't like this overt evangelism. He didn't like this strong evangelism that Mel Trotter represented. Didn't like this rescue mission approach. So when all the other men had spoken, asked a question, this old elder uh, spoke up. He had his gun loaded, and he aimed it right at Mel Trotter. He said, Mr. Trotter. He thought he'd flatten him with this. He said, Mr. Trotter, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Mr. Trotter said, does the Bible teach it? The man that took him back, the elder said, why, yes. Well, then I believe it. <laughs> he asked him about five or six questions. He responded the same way, and the man was ordained. Mel Trotter was, and carried on a great work of God. Predestination, election are biblical words. But I believe that Jesus Christ, although I believe in election, predestination, because the Bible teaches them, uh, I believe that Jesus Christ died for all men. And the Samaritans, the Samaritans said that he's the Savior of the world. That doesn't mean that all men are saved. That does mean, I believe, that the death of Jesus is sufficient to save all men, but it's sufficient for only those that believe. Now, going back to this uh, statement of the Lord Jesus in verses 34 to 38, I want to underscore three things here. Here's a tremendous passage, and we touched on it last time, and that's about all we did. I want to look at three things in verses 34 to 38. First of all, the priority of Christ. Verse 34, Jesus saith unto him, My food, my meat, is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. The thing that gives me satisfaction in my life, said the Lord Jesus, is to do the will of God. I sometimes ask people, what is the first, what are the first words of Jesus Christ that are recorded in the Bible? Anybody know? What are the first words of Jesus that are recorded in the Bible? I mean, after he left heaven not prior to his incarnation. Not my father's business. Yeah, we normally say that. The first words of Jesus are found in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, don't turn there. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, when he bringeth his firstborn in the world, when the Lord Jesus was, came into this world, he said, Hebrews chapter 10, I have come to do thy will, O God. Those are the first words of Jesus, said probably at his birth in the power of his divine nature, I have come to do thy will. The great dominating factor in the life of Jesus was the will of God. And what the Lord Jesus was saying was that the chief priority in his life was the will of God, obedience to the will of God. Do you know what Samuel said to Saul? To obey is better than to sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Obedience to the will of God was the chief priority in the life of Jesus. May I suggest that you run through the Gospel of John, find out how many times the Lord speaks of the will of his heavenly Father. I have come to do thy will, O God. What did the... Uh, what did the Lord, what did the Father say at the baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He always did perfectly the will of God. 
And so the Lord Jesus said, my food, the thing that gives me satisfaction, my food, my chief priority is obedience to the will of God, to do his will and to finish the work which he has given me. Now look at verse 34, to finish his work. What do you mean by that? Well, that word finish is the Greek word teleo. Teleo, to finish the work he has given me. Teleo, to finish his work. When Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, you know, he uttered seven great sayings. The sixth saying was, it is finished. In the Greek, it's but one word. To telestai, the same word here. To telestai. There it's the perfect tense. Here it's an infinitive. To finish his work. That's what I've come to do, to finish his work. At the baptismal seed, Jesus Christ was baptized. Why? Well, for several reasons. But one of them was this. Later on, the Lord Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am bound in, how I am straightened, bound in, until it's accomplished. What was that baptized? What was that baptism? with which he had to be baptized. Not water baptism. That took place two years ago. What was that baptism? That was the baptism of the cross. When God poured out his wrath upon Jesus, when all the ways of God's judgment that belong to you and me rolled over the Lord Jesus. I say rolled over because I'm an emergentist. See? Now you're not even responding to that. See? But uh, by I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I'm bound in till that's accomplished. And the same word is used there, if my memory serves me. What was that baptism? The baptism of death. And when Jesus Christ was baptized in water, that was a picture of his final baptism. The baptism at the cross when God poured out upon Jesus the judgment due you and me. And what he did, when he was finished, he said to tell us, die, it is finished. And the one great dominating theme in the life of Jesus was obedience to the will of God. Do you know what the one great mark of a disciple of Jesus is? That is to God. Now, the great mark of a disciple to others is love. John 13. But the mark of a disciple to God the evidence that I'm a true believer and that I please Christ is one thing, and that's obedience. Why did the Lord Jesus say in John 14, if you love me, stand up and give a testimony. If you love me, preach. No, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience to the will of God. And uh, the will of God was the dominating factor in the life of Jesus. It was his chief priority. Notice, secondly, the ready harvest. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 35, don't say there are yet four months and then comes harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white already to harvest. Now, I explained that last time a little, didn't I? It was probably in December. Harvest was in April, early harvest in April. And Jesus used that to draw an analogy. Don't say there are yet four months until harvest. That is, don't say we got plenty of time. Don't say Rome wasn't built in a day. 
don't say there's lots of time to get the job of world evangelism done. Don't say that. Don't say four months. But now the harvest is ready. And when he spoke, the harvest is white, he wasn't thinking of the grain harvest. He was thinking of the soul harvest. Look yonder, he said. See those Samaritans coming in white robes? Why, the harvest is white. It's ready to be reaped. And if you don't reap, they'll perish. I read a sermon because I spoke on this subject twice yesterday, Sunday morning and Sunday night. And Saturday night I read a sermon by a great Southern Presbyterian minister. He was the personal chaplain to Stonewall Jackson, Civil War. His name was Dabney. He's got a sermon called Reap or the World Perishes. Reap or the World Perishes. Jesus said, don't say not four months. The harvest is white now. If you don't reap, it'll perish. And embedded in those words are two ideas. First idea is, that um, first idea was this, that um, just as you can wait too long to harvest, and it'll be too late. So you can wait too long to be saved, and you pass on into eternity, and there's no hope. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And the second thing embedded in this, and something which I don't have time to take up tonight, when Jesus is speaking about the harvest is white, I think embedded in this declaration is the idea that if you don't reap, the harvest will rot. It'll be demolished. It's doomed if you don't reap. So a man that doesn't trust Jesus Christ in this life is due, lost for eternity. And when we say that, we have to answer three questions. First of all, first question we have to ask and answer, and I'm not going to answer them tonight, don't have time, but the first question that uh, we have to ask is the question, are men lost without Christ? And the answer is yes. Yes, they are. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the second question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is Jesus Christ the only way to God and to heaven? And the answer of Jesus, very clear. John 10, 9, I am the door, no other door. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way. Now I face a dilemma here. I have to do one of two things. I have to either acknowledge that Jesus is God, and if I do that, then I must accept what he said on the subject. I must acknowledge that what he said is true, and that there's only one way to God and to heaven, and that's Christ. Or I reject what he said, that can't be true, and in doing so, I have to reject, if I'm consistent, reject the fact that he's God. I can't have my cake 
and eat it too. I've either got to take both of them or reject both of them. If I reject his word, then I deny that he can speak without error. And if I do that, then he can't be God, because God doesn't make any mistakes. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then the great overriding question, what about the heathen who've never heard of Christ? What is their state? When I was in India, I wrestled with that thing. I've wrestled with that many times. That's a hard, difficult, dark subject. I've studied my Bible, read it carefully, and I can find no hope for a man outside of Christ. Paul deals with that, Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. And Paul lays down, and I mentioned this in my message Sunday morning and Sunday night, yesterday. Paul lays down, he's dealing with the pagan who never had supernatural revelation, but had natural revelation. Paul lays down four propositions. Number one, God has given to every man a measure of light. To the pagan, in Paul's day, and to the man in India and China, God has revealed himself externally in nature and internally in conscience. And God is going to judge that man, not according to the light that I have, the gospel, but according to the light that he has given to him. The second thing that Paul lays down is that men everywhere have rejected that light. They rejected it. Romans 1, 21, when they knew God, when they had a knowledge of God, they refused to submit to God. They were not grateful. They were not thankful, but they made idols. They rejected light. Third, Paul says, because they had light and they rejected it, Paul says at the end of Romans 1, verse 20, they are without excuse, without excuse. And the fourth thing that Paul says is, therefore, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by unrighteous deeds. Are the pagans lost? Are the heathen lost? Is the man lost who hasn't had a biblical revelation? As far as I read my Bible, the answer to that is yes. And that's why it is imperative to reach our generation with the gospel. I can't reach the last one. I'm not responsible for the next one. But my friend, you and I are responsible for this one. And God said through Ezekiel, remember that passage? Very, very moving passage. I have set you as a watchman on the wall. If you see the enemy coming, and you announce the people inside the city, the enemy comes, and they do nothing, and they are captured and destroyed, then you've delivered your soul. You warn them. But if you see the enemy coming, and you don't warn them in the city, then although they will be destroyed, their blood be on your hands. My friend, uh, you're going to face this, and I'm going to face it, at the judgment seat of Christ. See? I'm going to have to give an account to God for the opportunities that he gave me. I'm not going to be judged 
for my sin at the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian. That's under the blood of Christ. That's over. But I am going to be judged according to the responsibilities and the stewardship and the opportunities that God gave me. See? I'm going to have to give an account as a steward. So if that's true, then I ought to be thinking up some pretty good excuses now, see, which you know won't stand the test there. Then the third thing that he mentions is that there's going to be a certain reward. Chapter 4, verse 36, He that reapeth receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal. Wages perhaps probably refers to the joy and blessing that we receive in this life when we help somebody spiritually. Fruit unto eternal life speaks of the blessing and joy in the next life that we'll have when we see those whom we've helped spiritually. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. Many times I tried to get back to you at Thessalonica, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing in heaven? Are not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? See what Paul is saying? The thing that will constitute for me a crown, the thing that will be a source of joy to me in heaven, the thing that will be a source of hope to me is your presence in heaven, you whom I've helped and led to faith in Christ. Now somebody is going to say, well, I'm a housewife. I can't go to India. And um, I work here, there, yonder. I'm a layman. I can't go to India. I can't go to China. No, God doesn't expect everybody to go to India or China. For the Antioch church sent out. But number one, we can all, be in, uh, we can all have that desire in our heart by the grace of God to reach as many as we possibly can through others to faith in Christ. Secondly, we can all get involved in witnessing right here. You know, a, a fellow comes to Mid-South Bible College and majors in missions and goes here four years and never wins anybody to faith in Christ, never takes any interest in soul winning. We tell him, you better stay at home because crossing the sea isn't going to make you a soul winner. Crossing the sea isn't going to make you a missionary. If you don't have a missionary heart and a soul winner's heart before you go, crossing the sea won't make you. And all of us can do that by life and limb. We can all get involved in support of missions. We can all get involved in support of missions. And there's no reason why uh, some of us couldn't get involved in supporting some missionaries personally overseas. And that's not too hard a job because you take a, uh, a, a young Indian evangelist married and maybe one child, 
he can be supported for about $50, $60 a month. Mr. Spurgeon, who has three children and who has travel expenses, exists on $200 a month. And my translator, who was single, had as a salary 100 rupees a week. That's $12.50 a month, see? What a wonderful thing would be in a home if the mother and the father and the two children, or three children, all determined as a family to take on the support of one missionary overseas. That would lend something in a spiritual way to the family. And we can all be involved in giving. We can all be involved in prayer, see? And what did uh, the Lord Jesus say? He that, he that reaps and he that sows, whatever task God is assigning, are both going to be rewarded the judgment seat of Christ. So Mr. Spurgeon is over there reaping. But by praying and giving and supporting and helping, involvement, you can be sowing. And when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to read all of our motives, and he sees the end from the beginning, and he's going to reward us accordingly. All right, now we're going to look at the picture. And to close us in prayer, will you please? Sure. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.